Light beer, dark money. Agree on something. Politics, culture, and the intersection of faith, freedom, and free enterprise. And now, here are your hosts, Light Beer, Chris Clements, and Dark Money, Sean Noble. Welcome back to another episode of Light Beer, Dark Money. I'm Sean Noble. And I'm Chris Clements. And we've got with us today a very special guest. Royalty. Um, this is Political someone, royalty. Yeah, it is political royalty. Yeah. Um, Stephen Shattuck. Who you guys I've are known, too kind. I've known well, since... Well, you know, we're not known of being kind. <laughs> Only to people we like. Yeah, that's right. You know, we know where you are. We don't know where Mark Kelly is. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Um, I've known Stephen since he was in kindergarten. That's amazing. That yeah, you guys have a long history. Long, long history. history. Yeah. Yeah. So he... Did, did uh, you babysit? No. Well, no. I don't know. I mean, he came to the campaign to office school? and probably hung out. I actually think that we babysat more often than Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Please watch my campaign manager. Don't let him do anything stupid. Uh, I was that inexperienced. That's true. Um, That's classic. Yeah. So uh, 28 years, which is insane. It's a long time. It's a long time. Um, Stephen is the son, obviously, of John Shattig and the grandson of his namesake, Stephen Shattig, who we've talked about. Um, oh, and I shoot, I meant to bring the book just to show it off again, but yeah. anyway, how to win an election by Stephen Shattuck. I've, I, I've talked about that before on the podcast and usually it's, talk about it anywhere it, I go. It's the Bible. Yeah, it is the Bible. It just, we need to update it though. We do. Well, we've talked I, about you know, that. we've talked about that a lot on the podcast and now that you, both of you are here, it seems to me like we can come to some sort of well, agreement for, you know, how to win an election 3.0. I don't know that I, I've ever told you this, Stephen. But, Edi- edited um, by Stephen Shattuck and Sean Noble and then maybe and John, John Shattuck. Yeah, we could get the sign off from him. Yeah. He, he could do the forward or something. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I went through the book back in oh, 15 years ago. And I wrote um, updated epilogue and prologue of each chapter. Hmm. What's funny about the book is I'll bet you that we're seeing this change recently um, where some of the old tactics that are talked about in that book, like, for example, we did some postcards to some members with stamps. We have people calling the office on a daily basis saying, how much are the postcards? How much are the postcards? And it's like, <laughs> oh, they're free. So I think the book, you know, oh, that, right now would be really relevant. Oh, yeah, yeah. That stuff still works. Yep. It is. I mean, it really is timeless. And because there it one, Stephen Shattig was a great ad guy, marketing guy. He understood personal persuasion. And really, that's what politics is about. The tactics can, can be updated and changed, but really, um, the, the core tenets of the book that trust is the most important issue as a candidate. Um, and I, that bore out just so obviously in 2012 we did a post-election poll and of swing voters. Uh, we did like 2,000 swing voters nationwide, well, on the targeted states. Um, and the word or phrase, the top two words or phrases to describe Obama were disappointing 
and I can't remember the other one now. That's annoying. Um, anyway, I was like, well, how in the world if all these swing voters were disappointed in Obama, did they vote for him over Romney? Well, the number one word for Romney, mm-hmm. liar. So they, they were disappointed in Obama, but they trusted him more than Romney, and that made the difference. He was a more likable figure for a yeah. lot of people. Yeah. I, um, I think politics always comes down to what I said before, and that is who would you rather have a beer with? Light beer. Yeah. Yeah, or tr- I, I agree with the trust. I mean, look at, yeah. look at the, the Trump era, right? I mean, a lot of that came from he was not filtered, not PC. He said what he wanted to say and wasn't afraid. And yeah. I think people saw the trust in that, right? The, well, the, definitely more than Hillary. Yeah. Who they couldn't trust. You yep. know, they so. got tired. They, I think currently in society, people are tired of kind of the, the PC polished talk and they don't trust most politicians and i think that was refreshing if you look at obama same thing hope and change right you know with trump it's all this kind of like this new big hope you know and and different type of mentality but i don't know if we're getting anywhere from a you know where this country's going in a policy perspective i don't think we've gotten any better in the last you know eight to ten years no that's for sure that's for sure so you grew up in a political family obviously um, you were in kindergarten when your dad ran for Congress the first time. Um, what was it like to be the son of a congressman? Ooh, um, a blessing and a curse. Uh, <laughs> so um, you hear the you know Arizona royalty type of stuff um, all the time. And I think the one thing that I was blessed growing up with is my sister and I were both blessed is that um, our parents always told us like every day um, that we were no different than anybody else. Um, and my favorite answer to the question that I would get from my friends was, so what's it like to have a father who's a congressman? Was to, depending on who I was talking to most of the time, if it was, you know, their father was a doctor or whatever it was, I'd say, well, what's it like to have a mother who's a teacher? And they'd say, well, what do you mean? I'm like, it's just a job. Um, and so that's kind of how in our household uh, we were educated about what he did, right? Um, it was just a job. Now it was a job in which we were, you know, we always understood that it was a service to the public. And so what, my, what I did, what my sister did, um, that could be front page news. Um, so it meant that, you know, in high school, you know, boys get in trouble, right? Uh, I always made sure that if we were blowing something up, I was an extra 200 yards away <laughs> than all my friends. So, um, but there are a lot of great uh, kind of pros to it. Um, and I think in our, in, you know, our family, it is a, uh, why I say it's a blessing and a curse is that, you know, a lot of people tend to think that it's a, a handout. And I yeah. think most uh, you know, children of members probably uses that. Um, others can use it as motivation. I saw it as a, an opportunity that it's big shoes to fill, right? Um, especially with my grandfather. Um, and so I see it as a, an opportunity to drive at things. So you've ever thought about running yourself? I have. Um, so when do we start? Uh, <laughs> well, I have, and Sean will have heard this. Um, I have a strong belief that, uh, it needs to be a calling that in the moment you'll feel it. Um, I almost thought I felt it I don't know, four months ago and I thought, no, I think I may be just going to wait a little bit longer. So who knows? Um, you know, as we've gotten the last two years, I'll be honest, that desire has gone away. Mm. Uh, I look at all the things that take place on social media 
Uh, and it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you want to be a member of anything, right? Why would you want to run for office right now? Uh, we talked, I had a call yesterday with some individuals that, um, are looking at eliminating partisan primaries, uh, all upon the goal of uniting the country. Uh, and my challenge to that was that I don't really think it's an issue of partisan primaries. I think it's an issue of qualified, thoughtful, intelligent candidates. And the reason those qualified, intelligent candidates aren't running is one, because they get completely ridiculed by everybody in the public. And two, they make a lot of sacrifices. Um, Talking about, you know, the sacrifices of a lot of people would say that politicians make good money, but you can make more money in the business world than you can representing the people. And so it's just, it's a tough business to be in. And if you're going to stand for what's right, which is essentially getting beat up all the time, um, I just don't think we have the incentives to get good individuals in there. I think something has to change so that we can begin to look at how do we get thoughtful, qualified candidates back on the ticket so that we can start to move the, the country in a direction that's, you know, at least has some good direction. Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> it, I, as you will recall, when your dad announced retirement in 2008 and then unretired, I had basically just been poised to jump in to run for that seat. And then when he actually did retire in 2010, I, I took a pass on it. It was in part because when he called me after getting off the plane, it was a Thursday night, he got back from D.C., he calls me. This is a few days after he had announced retirement in 2008. He said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay. I'm, I'm not going to retire because Mike Pence had done the letter and, you know, he'd had all these people say, you can't retire. Um, the sense of relief that I felt, <laughs> I was like, what was I thinking? <laughs> so I've never, I've, I've never seriously considered it since then. Um, and, and as you say, right now, it just seems like insanity. Um, the, the, one, <laughs> the one thing that I remember thinking after he announced that he was not going to retire is like, so who's the poor sap that's going to announce retirement next and nobody asked him to stay? You know who yeah. it was? It was Tom Reynolds, <laughs> who had been the NRCC chairman <laughs> from oh, New York. Yeah. I was like, sorry, Tom. Nobody it's, wants you. <laughs> funny that you mentioned that year in that race. Just yesterday, I was telling um, some uh, colleagues of mine on, on my team about uh, how that year was the year that the DCCC put more money into b- defeating my father than they ever had, um, and how he walked, I don't know, you might remember the name of the chairman at the time, but um, after the election, he, he walked up to that member and said, you know, I've been looking all over for you. I have to thank you. And, and that he turned around and said, why are you thanking me? He said, well, you know, before you guys picked to target my race, I'd go into the grocery store, I could grab a loaf of bread, drive home, no one knew who I was. Now I walk in, I can't even get to the aisle of bread before someone goes, hey, John, hey, John, hey, John. So, and it was just a, it reminds me of the story he used to tell. Um, I, I think it was Goldwater, whoever it was, that basically said, you know, never give your enemy any more reason to go on hating you than they already right. have. So, right. It was Chris Van Holen, was the DCCC chairman, and uh, they spent $7 million against John, which was the most that had ever been spent in a congressional race in Arizona history at that point. Yeah. Which, Nowadays, it seems like. That's chump change. Chump change, yeah. Um, but it was, it was the most intense campaign I've ever done um, because 
we were all running scared. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But we ended up winning by 12. Yeah. So, <laughs> at the end of the day, it worked that out was, That well. was an expensive year. It was an expensive year. For those of us who... who who gave money? Who gave yeah. money? Yeah. And, Thank and, you, Chris. And who liked John <laughs> yeah. and wanted to make sure that he stayed there, and, and along with and along with John Kyle and and some others, I think. Was Kyle's race year? was oh six. That was oh six. Yeah, that was an ex- a really that was an expensive, expensive year as well. Yeah, but that was before there was real real outside money. So yeah. it it was the D Triple C spending and the and RCC did very little. But you bring up a great point. It's something that we've we've been working on uh, with another group here in, in Arizona um, about just training good candidates and just making sure they understand how to win. And you know, my background is working for Morton Blackwell and, yep. and Leadership Institute. And and Morton cites your grandfather's book as one of the greatest influences on on his career in terms hmm. of those tactics still work. He still teaches those tactics. He doesn't necessarily, you know give your your grandfather right. all the credit but but in terms of the campaign training schools that they do he gives you know those are the same tactics and you look at the landscape right now and you look at all these different candidates and my biggest frustration is that I'll get I'll have a candidate call me and they'll give me their 30 minute fox news you know stump speech and yet you still don't understand why they're running and what they want to do, they want to do all these big, big things that are has nothing to do with their district or anything else. And it's because they're not trained. It's because they just have they haven't really gone through the work of, of preparing to run for office. And to your point, I think if if more candidates would do that, we'd have better outcomes. We would. We absolutely would. And I'm sure there's different schools of thought on this. Um, I think that anybody in America who wants to run for office should do it. Um, But I also believe that it's become a profession, right? And it's become something that while I don't want to say that, you know, you have to be a professional to run for office. um, I think the, the integrity that we hold each office has lost its luster in that this isn't just something that should be considered a joke, right? Like if you're going to run for U S Congress or U S Senate, um, I love to tell congressional candidates and even Senate candidates, but, um, that, you know, you understand there's only one other elected official above a congressman and that's the president of the United States just to help them like soak it in. Um, I also like to tell them that, you know, running for Congress is, Game seven, World Series, um, bottom of the seventh, bases loaded, two out, right? Like, it is a no-joke yeah. game. Same with the Senate. Like, they will chew you up and spit you out. And I think they all tend to say, oh, no, no, I've, I've been in the business world, and I've seen this, and I've seen that. Um, and the truth is that I think you have to be smart about what you do, and it's an art. And if you look at, you know, kind of the history of Arizona, I think with the exception of probably John McCain, um, and McSally, most people who tend to make the jump from Congress to Senate or even kind of from state legislature up to Congress, I think they take time like Kirsten Sinema did and they studied it and they learned and they watched what they have to do to be successful and how to approach uh, in, you know, constituents. Um, and I think that is the art form that you're talking about, right? We need to begin to educate candidates on that information. I also think we need to educate candidates on, you know, you can be truthful, like, well, right, right. But not only that, but they, they paid their dues to a certain extent, right? They 
they they were involved. They took some of the slings and arrows that politics brings, and they didn't just jump into something without, to your point, doing the research, doing the work, understanding what it, what it is they wanted to accomplish. Right now, I would argue in the Senate race that we have, the United States Senate race, we have several candidates who think they can just buy their way into the office. Yep. And and thankfully, they're not polling really well because they haven't done the work. They haven't given back to the community that we have here. And I think that plays out in, in what their messaging is when they go out and actually meet with, you know, the, their possible constituents. Yeah, I agree. And so many people right now will tell you that if you say a word like pay your dues, right? Like, well, that's just being a rhino or, you know, just the establishment candidate, right? Um, and I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's paying your dues doesn't have to be get in line, right? Yeah. Paying your dues means that you have to honor the seat, honor what you're doing, be responsible and give yourself and honestly your constituents uh, an opportunity to be successful because they're going to go work for you. Um, my current boss ran for office and he told me a story once how by mid race, he would walk into the campaign office and he's like, I just started seeing these people that were there every Saturday calling for me. He's like, and you start to carry that burden and realize that these people are working really hard for me. Yeah. Um, and so I think to your point, like, yeah, you have to pay your dues. Well, but, but paying your dues on the political perspective is, you know, going to the LD meetings, going, going to the Republican women's club of greater Mesa or whatever it is. I mean, doing those sort of grassroots things that a lot of candidates think they can just, spend their money, not get their message out, and they don't really have to do the work and, and do the grassroots work that it takes to get elected. Yep. Well, too many candidates think that it's all about what they say and, and what they don't realize is they need to listen. Yeah. That's, because that's people want to hear a reflection of themselves from the candidate. You have no idea if you don't talk to real people and really have an understanding of what it is that people want desire, need, yeah. those kinds of things. Um, and it, it, it's, it's why, I mean, I, I, I get frustrated with candidates who, who think that, oh, well, I just need to get the signatures and get on the ballot, so I'll go pay somebody to get me my signatures. The most important thing you can do is go get signatures yourself because then you have a conversation. One, you get an understanding of what people care about and want. And two, you've had that personal interaction they're almost for certain going to vote for you if they signed your petition. Yeah. Um, and they're going to encourage their friends. I mean, it's, it's, it's the best grassroots campaigning tool you can possibly have. Well, Barry Goldwater said it best, right? If you, you, them, they'll yes, you. Yep. So, so when, you, when candidates are, are, are out in the public and all they do is talk about themselves and not interested in what, you know, who they're speaking to, especially large donors, you know, you get these candidates who, who will encounter large donors, and they, and, and those donors typically have been around the block a bunch of times. They've seen race after race after race after race. They've seen candidate after candidate, and and if somebody has their two cents to to give you, you need to listen. Yeah. And so many candidates don't, and then they wonder why they can't raise money. Yeah. They most of them don't, and you know. Not all of these candidates are what I would consider kind of aligned with my philosophy, but mm. I have noticed, I had an opportunity to, to work and, and meet Romney several times, uh, same with McCain um, and, and President Bush. And uh, what I've always found fascinating is that it's, they all get it, 
right? Like you meet them and it feels as though you're talking about grabbing a beer with them, right? Like I would love to go have a beer with uh, President Bush. Like that would be, I think it'd be a blast. The guy is really funny, but the, it's that personal connection, right? So Senator McCain, every time he would meet somebody, would walk up to him and say, hello, friend. And just that word, hello, friend, even though he might not remember you, probably most of the time he doesn't, it went a long ways, right? He never said friend to me. Oh. Well, <laughs> called everybody boy. Yeah. Well, he did. He, he did call he me called boy. me Stevie. <laughs> called Stevie. Stevie boy is what it was. He Stevie would, boy. I mean, John McGee would go up to me and go, hey, boy, how you doing? How's your mom? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. McCain, I mean, one thing you'll have to say, I have to say about McCain, and I've probably said this before, he was one of the best retail politicians I ever saw. Well, and then if he knew you and if he liked you, he would just, it would just he would, relentlessly he would, tease you. He would yeah. tease you in front of other people. Yeah. And so I can't tell you how many times I was at a fundraiser with McCain and I'd be there and, you know, we'd all be together and he'd be like, hey, you know, Chris over here. Yeah. He just got out of prison. <laughs> and you're like, oh, Chris. he loved that. <laughs> yeah. He loved those shows. He just got out of prison. He's, he's right out of rehab. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what was the, the Betty Ford Rehab Center is yeah. what he always said. So I was fortunate. I got, I think. Uh, you probably got the big run of it. I, well, no, I was fortunate with it. I think I got to see a side of McCain that a lot of people didn't necessarily see. Um, I think you have to be really strong nosed and, and push hard to be successful in his line of work. Um, that said, and I think he had that reputation, right? Most do. Um, I was just fortunate to be a part of kind of that last run. Um, and I don't want to say that he knew it, but we, I got to spend a ton of time on the road with him traveling and we went to tombstone. We went to Winslow. We literally went to Winslow and stood in the corner and like, we took a picture and like it, it felt like one, what really kind of drew me to John McCain at the end of that election that maybe really respect him a lot, um, was he loved the state. And at the end of the day for me, like that's number one, right? If caring about Arizona and loving this state is my top priority. And he truly loved Arizona and he loved everything about it. Um, and so whether or not, you know, he was always writing the policies as long as it was well-intended. Um, and so I kind of just felt like he, I almost felt like he knew that was kind of his last go around because we went to culture cabins down in Tucson. Like who does that? Right. Like <laughs> most, most sitting senators don't do that. So yeah. That's, that's great. That's a great experience for you to have had. Um, Cause that's, that, that's as close to experience what Goldwater would have been like. I yeah. think it yeah. could be, cause for he sure. was the same way. He loved going to every part of the, every corner of the state. Yep. Um, what, uh, what's, what's been your, the biggest surprise for you? in politics. I mean, you grew up with it, so there's lots of things that you kind of instinctively had, but what's been, what experience or incident or whatever? Man. Because you've done some pretty interesting campaign. You've, you've done a Senate race in Oregon. You've done a congressional yep. race in Southern California. I think it, the, I guess I'll have to separate the, the two from the policy world to uh, the camp, the political world, right? Um, I think my biggest surprise in the political world on the campaign side is I think there's a campaign culture and I think it's an unhealthy culture. Mm. And I think that like, I hope that somebody is out there trying to drive and change that culture. Um, cause I think it needs to be fixed. And, and we talk about societal change. Um, 
some of it's always you know, some good, some bad. But I do think that the culture in campaigns needs to change. And it's hard. It's because you only have 14 months, right? Um, outside of that, I think uh, probably my biggest I don't know, aha moment is just how short-sighted so many elected officials and candidates are. Mm. Um, it, I mean, you look at the you know, federal delegation, the state legislators, they all are making decisions today. And when you talk to them about it, they're just so laser focused on what the bill is doing right now. Nobody seems to zoom out and say, what's going to happen 10 years from now, right? Like yeah. maybe this isn't the greatest policy or maybe we should pull it back and take a baby step. Um, and I think that's kind of what I've seen. Like nobody has that forward focus and that bigger vision. Um, and quite frankly, also the thoughtfulness um, right. that, that we look for. <clears throat> yeah, I, t- I think that's a really good point that you think you th- we live in such a, you know, instant gratification society um, and nobody's really thinking beyond well, they, they're certainly not thinking beyond the next election. Right. That's, that's as far forward as they'll go. Yep. Right. Yeah. And there's no strategy behind it. It's what's funny about it is, uh, nobody, they talk about this in the book and, and, uh, at AFP, we talk about it and we use it, we call it program theory. Um, but in the book, it talks about, you always start with the day of election and work back. And actually, I think if we tweaked the book, I would say, because the last chapter in the book is don't let them steal it from you. And in Arizona, that I can tell you is 100%. They should really be start from two months after the election, walk your, your legal strategy back, <laughs> then election day, then back. Right. So, yeah, that's a great point. What do you think's most toxic about campaigns these days? Um, I mean, that's kind of what you were alluding yeah, to. Yeah, it was. The toxicity. Uh, yep. Uh, I think the the way that individuals are treated on campaigns. Um, and it's because in, in full transparency, it's because there's a ton of pressure, right? Like you, you have 12 to 14 days, uh, to on a Senate race. Um, I always tell people on the outside to kind of show how, what it looks like is it's like starting a company from, you know, scratch. And in 12 months you're on the Forbes list, right? That's the win. And if you make the Forbes list, you won. Well, that's pretty crazy. Like, yeah. I don't think anybody can really do that. Like, not very people are able to do it, but that, that is really what it's like. Cause you know, most of these candidates come into it and they understand that they probably have to raise a million bucks because that's what they did in their congressional or, or in some cases, you know, you know, they're self funders and they all think, all right, I'll throw my money into it. No big deal. And I think they love to say they're going to throw their money into it, but I would imagine it's pretty tough to actually throw the money into it. Yeah. Um, and so, there's just this pressure that's there that's from them and from you to be successful in such a short period of time that there isn't room for mistakes and, and the, the importance of the details, everything gets compressed to this really tight time frame, And so everybody's under, everybody's under pressure. And if you slip as, you know, I think on a Senate race on a manager today, really more of kind of a an office manager in some ways right mm-hmm. like you got 10 to 20 gcs on u.s senate races right now right and like so you really should be more of a yes man than you should be you know pushing the strategy which is i'm not saying it's good or bad but um and so i think that culture results in people losing their temper 
and and push it on people. Um, so, and I just think that there's got to be some form of like, how do we pull that back where we can be successful, get the message across with, without you know, yelling at somebody? Well, and I think that, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do, and I say this as a political consultant, but I think that there's too much political consultancy and not enough campaign management. Yeah, I think I've, that the shift, you know, when the book was written, the campaign manager was essentially a GC, yep. right? There was no such thing as a general consultant. Um, and I think that having that personal relationship, I mean, I'm not saying that your dad and I didn't have some screaming matches, but <laughs> it was pretty rare. Uh, they were pretty wild. Um, but there was a, there was a friendship, there was a trust, there was, you know, he, there was never, I don't think he ever doubted that I was doing everything I possibly could. Now he doubted my judgment, which he should have, right. because I was, you know, inexperienced in a lot of things. Um, but there was, you know, he, I was the manager, but he was really running his campaign um, because he was the guy who had the experience in that. He was the son of the greatest campaign manager that ever walked. Um, and and so that was, if we could get, if candidates could get back to, I want the, the campaign manager being the, most important decision and not who the GC is right. that, that I think. And really if it's a, if you're willing to, to the problem is that there's too many young guys and not young and not as young now who want to, they don't really want to have to do, be the campaign manager. They want to jump to the consultant role without ever actually, you know, you want to talk about paying your dues. Yeah. So many of these, Guys, I mean, I I was forty something years old before I was like, okay, I think I can actually go do this for other people besides the one person that I've been working with, you know, yeah, for a long time. So it's again, it's that instant gratification. Yeah, right? but but that's another point. We talk about candidates and the shortage. I'm sure you're seeing this this year, but there's a huge shortage in campaign managers. Yeah, and it's all because, quite frankly most of the experienced ones have done it enough that they say, sorry, but like it's, I think if you're a good campaign manager, it is the equivalent to being the candidate. Like in some ways, almost more, right? Like, because you basically are side by side with that candidate and it's 24 seven nonstop, right? You're invested, you should be invested in it as much as the candidate. Um, And so that's stopping your life for somebody else. Yeah. Pretty big commitment. Yeah. No, I, yeah, you and, have to freeze everything, and you have to you have to be in lockstep every step of the way. I mean, yeah, but 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 that's that's the initial part of, and you guys know this better than anybody, but of getting the campaign structure off the ground and and, and you doing the initial work. I, what I'm seeing now, and I won't name names, but there's a candidate who's running for um, a Republican primary here calls me up. He's already hired an outside consultant from Washington, D.C., hired, hired a, a fundraiser. I'm like, well, who's really managing your campaign? He said, well, I think I am. And I'm like, and then he gave me, and this is an example I use, he gave me the 30-minute like Fox News talking points, you know, why I'm running for Congress speech. And I said to him, you need to fire everyone. <laughs> you need to take a class on campaigning and regroup and understand that you've got 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds to explain to me why you're running and and then build 
build from the things you want to accomplish and bring some people around you who believe in that vision and then as maybe hire some people to do some work for you. But you're doing it all, all backwards. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's so many candidates who just think that they, they, they don't, they're not willing to put in the actual work. I mean, yeah. we thinking through that. what their speech is, their pitch, practicing it, you know, practicing it in role playing it. I mean, that stuff is real. I mean, yeah. that's, that's how you get through this. You stuff. talk about that. And that's the, what, that's the drug for me, like in, in the campaign world is what I love about campaigns is it is an industry in which quite frankly, like if you want it more than the other guy and you don't mess up, you can outwork them. Like that's how you win. If you really want to work it, you can outwork anybody. And it like, that's just not always in a lot of industries. That's not always the case. Right. Yeah. Um, and cause I don't think in today's world in, in campaign world, most people aren't willing to work as hard as it, what it really takes. Well, they think that money makes up for work and it really doesn't. Um, yeah. And you just, just did a lecture so on many, that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many instances where money, money does not buy you votes. I mean, it's nice to have, but um, commitment, hard work, and because what people don't recognize is that if you're if you're out there working your ass off, and you are putting in the time and doing it right, that motivates anyone that sees you, and so you're you're you know putting out the aura, I guess. That this is a guy that cares, and, and or a woman that cares, and yeah. they're working hard, and and so that that draws people to you, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be money. Um, now, you know, there are clearly races where money is a is a factor, but there are innumerable examples of losses by the people who by the candidate who spent more money. Oh, innumerable. I think there are some, can, there's some two, races. 2016 presidential race. Right. I mean, it's true. Perfect example. It happens every year. But yeah. I mean, there are, the congressional they're, races, all, they're always going to have more yeah. money. It's, yeah. it's, there's definitely some races here in Arizona, at least on the statewide side, that I think there'll be some candidates that probably outspend in a primary their opponent and they don't end up moving on to the general. Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's going to happen. So, no question. Talk to us a little bit about what you're doing now and how you. You know, and and so with Americans for Prosperity, yeah, which has uh, which you know has a very interesting tinge to it, and, and it's, a, it's but <laughs> but there's some people tinge. who it's a great organization. It is a great organization, but there's some people who you know hear Americans for Prosperity, and they think, oh, Koch brothers. Yes, uh, that's my pet peeve. By the way, there's a. Uh, I've always told myself that the day that I get somebody to tweet. Americans for prosperity instead of Coke is the day that I just have, have time to walk away because right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one ever says anything about Americans for prosperity when they're, you know, going after you. It's always Coke, Coke, Coke. Yeah. Um, but uh, to kind of go to the, what I was talking about earlier on the culture side. Um, so I've been with Americans for prosperity now for three years. Um, when I, first started looking at kind of my transition and where I wanted to go, I kept on telling myself, you know, I want a place that has good culture. Uh, and during my interview process, I asked like, so what's the culture like? What's the culture like? Um, and I don't think I really understood. Actually, I didn't understand how great the culture really was. Um, but my current boss said to me, you know, Stephen, I've been here for 
well now it's 17 years for him. Um, and I can honestly tell you, I don't feel like there's anybody in this network who wants to stab me in the back. Um, hmm. and in politics, that's, that's unheard remarkable. of. Yeah, that's yeah. remarkable. Um, and my other caveat was I wanted to go someplace where I could really fight for freedom. Um, and since starting there, I've learned that the, you know, America's prosperity, their culture is spectacular. Um, you know, Charles Koch and, and his kind of business mindset, um, it is nothing like what you hear from the media. Nothing close. Oh, no. um, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I said that all in jest, but people who really know the truth yeah. know First of all, what they've done philanthropically across the country, which is unbelievable, and then and then what they've done for the movement, which yep. is which is dramatic. Yeah, well, and I, you know, talk about your the, the title of your show, right? Um, you know, I think Sean probably would tell you that that being tagged to dark money for a long time, it's like oh, I want to get rid of this perception, right? But I would say it looks like he's leaning into it. I've I've embraced it. Yeah, <laughs> I I would say that I think that's the one thing the Cokes might need to do more is embrace it, right? Well, and I think that I mean it's not going away. I mean I think there was a time when I was there uh, in the in the mix of the Coke operation, we we resisted that really aggressively, um, and you know made the arguments about free speech and anonymous speech and those kind of things, which is all legitimate, and I still do, but. It's the, the moniker is not going away because they, the media and the left, just it's too easy for them. They're, well, and, but, it's, but, and it's and it's hypocrisy. It's well, it's most. total hypocrisy yeah. because they we're, we're going to have more, a, a, they a have new, more dark money than, than we're going to have a new right. Supreme Court justice who absolutely was nominated because of dark money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely demand true. justice. Dark money group. Dark money. Yeah. yeah. But it, but it, to, to your point, it, it does good things, right? So, yeah. uh, what we're doing here in Arizona is America's Prosperity has 35 chapters. Um, what I love about my job, and I don't even consider it a job, um, is we get to dabble in everything. So, we engage in state policy, uh, we engage in federal policy, uh, we engage in political campaigns, um, and you know, really see for and also PAC efforts. Um, and then we can also do educational training on C3 stuff. Uh, and there's, you know, the best part about it is, you know, just this year I was down at the state capitol lobbying on a bill that would allow for um, U.S. citizens who receive their medical license in another country because of the current kind of stopgap and how hard it is to get into medical school in the United States. Um, and I'm down there lobbying and, and uh, talking before I went is, you know, the uh, doctor's association and their lobbyist. Um, and keep in mind this, it's also 10 o'clock at night. Uh, this is one of those committees where it just, it went on and on and we were the last bill. Um, and, you know, I, I'm watching them and they get up there and they just spin it and just spit a whole bunch of BS, right? Um, and I'm thinking to myself, man, you're a hired gun. Like, you don't even believe in this. Like, yeah. you know it's probably wrong, and this is probably the most crony thing, and all you're doing is just protecting the good old boys club, right? Um, and so my favorite part is that I get to get up there and actually advocate for something because I know it's good, and that's yeah. a ton of fun because I get to look. Even, you know, that we luckily got their committee, um, and unfortunately... Um, the bill got held, didn't make it to the floor, uh, but don't worry, we'll, we're coming back we're coming next back. year. Yeah. <laughs> but I get to look at their lobbyist, um, who all, the, all these lobbyists, they'll tell you, why don't you just wait until next year, like, and we can work through it in the summer, and it's like, no, like, not gonna do that. Uh, and I just like looking at them, because I get to look at it and say, 
look, you're a hired gun and I get to do what's right for Arizona every yeah. day. And I can go home and fall asleep to that. And you, sure, you make probably good money, but you have to understand that what you did today might not be the best thing for the state. Right. So. Well, and, and that's why, and I have a great admiration for conservative groups who, who are on the Hill advocating for freedom, advocating for even faith issues. You see what happened yesterday with the governor signing you know, some, some crucial legislation. Um, that was that was led by you know Center for Arizona Policy and Goldwater gets their wins and AFP gets their wins and and so freedom is advancing and rather than these association guys who are, to your point hired guns and 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 their their members are all over the place right yep. and so, and so their their marching orders might change from day to day yeah well and, and I think the the fun part about that is you know the association guys and the lobbyist the contract lobbyist. Um, we passed a historic tax cut last year. Um, and I get asked the question all the time, like, what did you do? And this is where the campaign side of it comes in. Cause you, in the network, you see a lot of this. I think most people in society are either policy or political. You don't see both. Yeah. Um, and I always tell them like, I just leveraged our capabilities, right? I basically campaigned a policy issue, which people don't see down there. Right. When all of a sudden legislators are getting patched through calls from constituents and mailers, um, and digital ads are like, whoa, 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 this is not how we lobby. Like we just, we sit down in a dark room and we work through <laughs> right, it. Right. Right. And so it's but fun that's to show. old school. Yeah. I mean, it's so old school. That's what I love about it. Yep. So, and it's, it, what I like about it is like, no, let me just show you the people that voted for you. They, they have an opinion on this and they want to let you know what it is and they're still watching. Right. Um, so that's exactly. the fun part. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. God, this time has just flown. Can't believe it. Are we? Are we at time? We're out of time. No, we can't be out of time. We're getting close. <laughs> what Robin uh, will let us go over like five minutes. Yeah. I mean, I was what? late. Yeah. Which is rare. It's usually me that's late. I oh. I was worried I was going to be late, and I figured I'm like, well, Sean knows my dad well enough. Like he'll know I'm probably not on time either. So, you know, you have your dad's mannerism. Yeah, you know? I know. You asked because I've been spending a lot of time with your dad you? lately. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and it's, it's uncanny. Un- it's really uncanny. So, so we started this whole thing off with like, what's it like, right, um, to grow up in it? And I think what I've noticed, I tell people about this all the time, is you know, you watch the mannerisms, right? And and I like to tell people that I learned the art of politics from the passenger seat of a 1997 Ford F-250 pickup truck. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because my dad had this that, that phone that like it was always on speaker. Yep. And as a kid, you know, like, don't talk while your parents are on the phone, right? But you could luckily hear everything. Um, and so I think they made a rule with this at one point where, you know, once you pass 12, you can't go on the floor and, and help your parents vote. Um, but I'm sure there were tons of conversations that I shouldn't have been a part of that I got to hear. And so uh, I think I just, I watched and I learned and I watched and I learned and um, you know, you pick up on those mannerisms and, and kind of you move forward with them. Um, but you're right. Like it's your role model, right? Everybody's yeah. father is a role model. So yeah. 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 No, I see it. And I, I've seen it in, in times when you guys are together and I just start laughing <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's like watching twins. Yeah. Could have but a worse school model, so yeah, right. very fortunate. But it's a great legacy, and it's a great, um, it's great being around, you know, royalty. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the important part about it to me is Arizona, right? Like, yeah. look at Goldwater. Um, it, it's not about the individual; it's about 
what the individual can help the state achieve, right? Or help the country achieve. Um, and I think that's what it's got to go back to, right? It's got to go back to um, politicians understanding that it's not about them. It's about the people, right? And it's about their ability to affect good change that helps people in their lives. Um, and, I, and sometimes I wish I could just walk up to a member and say, do you understand, like, this is about the people of Arizona, right? Like, what you're doing here is, you're, you know, you're holding hostage money or, you know, something that's going to endanger Arizonans and, and just pull them back out of it and help them understand, like, it's not about you. It's about them. So, yeah, well, and it goes biggest, back. It's one of the biggest issues in politics is it becomes about the politician. And it's like, no, this is for the people. I mean, this is not what the founders intended. Well, and, and what I was going to say was you hope it's about principles and, and sticking to your principles and actually having some. And I think that's why people are so worn out by politics in general, because that idea of having these are my principles this is what I believe and I'm going to fight for these. And I hope you know to fight for you by, by espousing these principles. Nobody does that anymore. Nope. Nobody knows what, what, what they believe, why they believe and what they want to fight for. And that's why our country is in such a mess. Yeah, and, and 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 what I wanted to say is that that's part of your legacy, part of the legacy of the Shattuck family, is principle, is sticking yeah, to those yeah, principles, no and 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 espousing those principles, and saying, you know what, I'm willing to lose before I give up my principles. Yep. Yeah, and I think it's you know the work you're doing with the Leadership Institute. Um, I really do see that as what could be the future in Arizona. I think we're reaching a crossroads where uh, in the last two years, people ask me, you know, what party I associate with. I tell them I'm conservative now. Yeah. And I never would used to say that. But, but the reason I now say that is because going back to principles, I think we have to start to reset people's mindsets. Republicans is a party, right? There's independent party, there's libertarian party, there's Democrats, right? And all parties. Conservatism is a philosophy based on principles. And the party was just built off of those principles, right? Like, oh, we all agree to these core principles, so let's call ourselves Republicans, right? But at the end of the day, you've got to go back to the philosophy. And I think in Arizona, what I see as more like independents and moderates really are conservatives. Um, yeah. The intellectual, thoughtful people that right. have that core. It reminds me that, you know, when Goldwater wrote the book, Conscious of a Conservative, he didn't call it Conscious of a Republican. No. It was Conscious of a Conservative. Yeah. yeah. And, and in your leadership courses that you guys have been doing, uh, I, by the way, thank you. I've been blessed to attend them. Um, we, they don't talk about Republican, right? No. We talk about the principles. And so I think getting people to back to that core of understanding, like, this is you know, what we believe in as Americans and, and the philosophy behind it, that's what we need to be focused on. Not, you know, whether or not you got this endorsement from the former president. yeah. yeah. <laughs> So. It's the, the, it, we have to get out of the individual fealty and back to core principles of freedom. Yeah. Well, and, and your, the organization you're affiliated with, Americans for Prosperity, is, is one of the great stalwart promoters of conservative principles. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, in the training that we're doing in conjunction with the Leadership Institute and a new group here in, in Arizona called Four of the 48th, part of, of the whole idea is you know, bringing conservative groups together, conservative leaders together, and talking about principles and talking about how you win by espousing principles rather than just policies and right. and and relying on consultants and relying on other people who don't have your best interests at heart. Right. So figure out where your heart is 
and then espouse you know espouse those publicly yep because you can't go wrong yeah and that goes back to the the it's okay to disagree and you never see this right like yeah you're uh, so right just i mean goldwater used to do it all the time like he would say he would disagree with somebody listen i hear what you're saying but i disagree and here's why to me it's like wow like and it's this what is a novel concept. It's like, oh my gosh, shocking, right? And so yeah. uh, that's another shocking thing about my time in politics is, and like, it still happens daily that you hear these rumors and then you ask somebody else and it goes on and goes on and finally you just pick the phone up and you're like, I'm just going to call the guy and find out. And you call him and he's like, no, I never said that. Like, here's what's happened, right? And it's like, if people would just call directly and ask the question, right? Be like fully transparent, give them the answer, tell them why, Things tend to go pretty well. Like, surprisingly, the, the truth works. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's one of the challenges of Twitter is it just becomes such a cesspool. <clears throat> People just want to get their, you know, hit. And yep. So it's, it's dragged us all down. Today. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's stuck on their phones. Yeah. yeah. Rather than interacting personally. So right. It's, yeah. It's absolutely. I well, mean, that's still the bedrock of politics. It is. Yeah. It, the, the, the personal, I mean, it says it in the book. The most important interaction is a candidate asking for a vote, a voter for a vote. Um, well, and then next to that, it's people that they trust. I mean, and Morton Blackwell has this thing called the laws of the public policy process. Hmm. And the law number 11, which I used to, I use with politicians quite a bit, it seems like these days, is in politics, you have your word and your friends. Go back on either and you're dead absolutely true and i've used that with many politicians yeah yeah so well steven it's been uh, awesome awesome yeah thanks for having me on it's been a lot of fun i appreciate it thank you you. we'll have to have you back probably uh either right before or right after the election so we can we can do some discussion about what it looks like probably right after so we can say okay this is what it looks like oh there's a guy Wash the windows behind me. <laughs> that's our time. That, that, that's, <laughs> our, right. that's the hook. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, Have a thank good one. you.